Dr. Albert Moeller is a pastor and theologian whose mission is to address contemporary issues from a Southern Baptist Christian worldview. Stay tuned to listen to my conversation with Albert Moeller. Dr. Muller, thanks so much for coming out. I'm really glad to be here, Lila. Thank you. Now, you are a towering figure for many Christians in our country and beyond. A theological leader, mm. um, pastor, teacher of teachers. Can you share some background on for people that might not be yeah. familiar with you, though? Because, you know, whether they're Catholics or maybe non-Christians listening, we have people from all different back yeah. walks of life who listen in. Well, that's very kindly said. I'm a native of Florida. Grew up in um, Florida before Florida became what you know of it now. <laughs> uh, the population was a fraction uh, when I was a boy. And uh, by the way, formatively, uh, one of the things that had a big impact on my life was uh, just the uh, the Cold War, because uh, Florida became one of the most militarized places on planet Earth because of the Cuban Missile Crisis. But personally, I grew up in a wonderful Christian home. Uh, everything intact, mom, dad, aunts, uncles, two sets of grandparents. It was idyllic, and I was raised in a wonderful Christian church. Um, so all that was, was, it was an intact society. And so I look back and I say, you know, everything was basically with my family and community and church. It was in place as it should be. And there's a brokenness that's happened in our society in which very few children had the kind of experience that I had. Mm -hmm. And uh, so then uh, my father was transferred down to South Florida, Fort Lauderdale, and uh, just a bustling area. Mm -hmm. And that's where I really met diversity for the first time, because there wasn't much diversity in the, in, in the South in terms of people. People weren't moving from, uh, you know, Manhattan mm -hmm. uh, to Polk County. Mm -hmm. They were moving from New Jersey, uh, all over the Northeast, uh, New York, and uh, other places down to South Florida. And so I got to high school and had uh, Catholic friends and Jewish friends and all kinds of other. Uh, so it, that really kind of prompted an intellectual quest in my life. And so some of the big questions, and by the way, the big questions of life in the United States were kind of exploding in the 1970s. And uh, I was in a context in which I was kind of thrown into all those arguments really, really early. And so when you started getting, maybe facing yeah. the questions that were alien to you as a little boy growing up, yeah. and they're normal yeah. questions for an adolescent, right. you know, questions about sex and religion and right. things that, you know, you have other opinions now hitting you. Right. What was your, what was your guiding star at that time? What was well, the, I was a Christian and uh, a believing Christian in a wonderful Christian church, had Christian parents, and like I was surrounded by. So you felt your faith was your own from a young age? Uh, yes, especially at age nine, um, having a spiritual experience that, that uh, really, I, I believe, was conversion, and uh, then really growing in grace. But I was thrown into an intellectual uh, hurricane. Uh, I had atheist teachers. I didn't know there really were any atheists <laughs> until all of a sudden I'm in this situation. Uh, the morality was breaking loose in the society. Roe v. Wade, 1973. I entered high school just a few months after that. And uh, so all of this, I was shocked by the people who were thrilled by Roe v. Wade. Uh, was that your first time with having an opinion on abortion? Do you remember the first time as a kid you thought about abortion, learned about it, and, yeah. and had a response to it? What was that like? First time I heard about abortion was when I came home from school the oldest of four children, mother, a registered nurse who uh, loved babies and uh, was a, a nurse to an OBGYN until the day I was born, first eldest of four. And I came home and uh, there were pamphlets and things all over the kitchen table. And it, uh, they were very graphic. I didn't know what an abortion was. I was 13, I didn't know what most things were. Uh, I could live in a society in which, you know, Roe v. Wade was just months mm -hmm. there before. Uh, th there was no knowledge. I, don't, I, don't, I didn't know any kids my age who knew what it was. But my mother was one of the very early people involved in the pro-life movement. Fantastic. And so this was literature just to awaken people. I don't think she meant for a 13-year-old. Uh, to come find it on the kitchen table, not without when, conversation, not without some conversation. When you say they were graphic, were there images of abortion survive, abortion victims? There Is were, that what you, there were you saw? Photographs of, of babies who'd been aborted, mm -hmm. and uh, 
you know, at that time, evangelicals were caught very flat-footed dealing with this issue. So almost all of the literature came from Catholic sources and uh, in the North who've been working with this issue for, for some time. And uh, yeah, it, it was very graphic. But you know, I, as a Christian, I would say, the graphic nature of the photographs revealed truth. Of course. And, well, for me, that was yeah. how I first became strongly pro-life was seeing mm. the image of what abortion does to a baby yeah. 10 weeks old first trimester. You know when you see this right. is a human life, we have to, and you're convicted that you have That's to right. do something. Right. What did you feel when you saw those images? Well, I was as both, a uh, both revulsion and fear. Mm. Uh, I mean, I had baby brothers at that time. Mm. And uh, this just doesn't, this doesn't add up. Um, and, and, and so just to be very clear, uh, these are graphic photographs of a fairly late term abortion. Now, abortion is the killing of a human person at any point from fertilization until, until birth. Um, but uh, th th this was a picture that to a 13 year old set of eyes was just incomprehensible. And honestly, I was scared. Uh, you know, it, it's hard to say this, but at the same time, we had Holocaust survivors living in the community, which I, I was, was a new thing. And I mean, if they can do this to them, they can do it to me hmm. uh, or someone I love. And there's so, a there's a, a certain, 13 year old response. There's a certain wisdom in that response, though, that I think is yeah. maybe unusual because yeah. you had a sense of what happened to this baby in this picture, which is an abortion, right, which right, is now legal right. because of Roe v. Wade, 1973. Right. It can happen to others, too, that the violence we can't pretend like we're just going to keep the violence in the womb and it won't spread throughout society. That's and right. now with the legalization of euthanasia, you know, physician assisted suicide, killing uh, right. the elderly, the sick, right. the those that are seemed as defective somehow. Right. This was the original that's vision right. of, right. of, you know, Margaret Sanger and the eugenicists. Right. That's now taken a new, it's now popular in, your, in Canada. They're killing thousands of right. uh, people with depression and mental health and other issues just because they're feeling sick and so they kill That's them. Right. So that was, a, that was wisdom at a, at a young age. Oh, that you had absolutely. that sense that this could affect all of us. Yeah, there's a very prominent uh, Jewish philosopher at the University of Chicago who rightly calls this the wisdom of repugnance mm. or more colloquially, uh, the yuck factor. And he's a specialist in biomedical ethics, a man of great wisdom. And he points out that a society that, that loses and denies that wisdom of repugnance is a society that will kill anyone. Mm. And so, yeah, I think, that, I think that's a very good point. Mm. Uh, that's a part of how those pictures were so effective. And uh, so, I, you know, I don't think my mother intended for me to walk in and see them. I say not without conversation, mm -hmm. but uh, we had th that conversation. And um, I, I honor my mom for being a very early pro-life advocate and She sounds fantastic. And what you're saying about the wisdom of repugnance is I think the opposition understands this, the pro-abortion side, yeah, yeah. because their entire strategy is to destigmatize and has been from the beginning. to normalize yeah. and to in order to do that they have to hide that's right. why they have such vehemence against showing images of abortion victims because right. they say it's evil to show how dare you show how dare you kill this child right, right? right. but they're so angry about it because it's, what it pulls done. the veil off yeah. of off of it so you're a teenager it sounds like you're having this awakening to what yeah. the, the, maybe the evil in the world it sounds like. And yeah, the, and, and look, it was a culture. pretty comprehensive awakening. Atheist teachers, sexual revolution, uh, political awakening. Uh, you know, I, I went to work as a very ardent uh, teenage uh, campaign worker for Ronald Reagan and his insurgent campaign in 1976 uh, for the Republican nomination. And uh, was introduced to so many people who, uh, you know, handed me literature, referred me to books. And, and so all this is being kind of knitted together. And uh, a very gospel-minded, scriptural church, which I was a part, and a pretty titanic influence down the street, and a Presbyterian pastor by the name of D. James Kennedy, uh, who was very, very involved in these things, took a personal interest in me, and uh, helped me think through these things a very great deal. It's the power of a mentor. A absolutely, and the power of literature, and the power of books, and the power of being handed health rather than unhealth. Uh, that's a massive thing that older 
people can do for younger people. So at the very young age of 33, as I understand, you were yeah. elected the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, which That's was an right. earth-shattering moment for you personally, and I think for yeah. the school, is my understanding, right. because there were a number of people that were more progressive and didn't like the, let's call it an orthodoxy you had in moral It was moral a time issues. of war. Yeah. It was a time of war. It was very much a time of war in our denomination. But it sounds like you were prepared. You had, well, by you God's had, grace, I you was. had studied, and you had, yeah. you had at this time you'd been mentored yes, um, by yes. another, you know, giant yeah. in in the kind of the culture battle. What else prepared you for that day when you were elected the the president? Well, in one sense, I would just have to say God did it, and I want to say that very humbly because uh, you know a thirty three year old does not elect himself as president of the you know first and oldest and uh, most influential institution in a body like the Southern Baptist Convention. There had to be a reason. It was a time of theological war in our denomination. And uh, I was there when they needed me. And uh, I had been thinking all my adult life, which wasn't that long, about how the school could be made right. And why were you so interested in that? Well, I was a graduate two times, Mm -hmm. uh, both the master's and the PhD degree. And and look, um, you know, any teaching exchange is an exchange of... uh, uh, of, of some real love between a student and teachers. But I had to come to the conclusion that my teachers were not qualified to teach in this institution, that they were so liberal on so many different issues, theological. But look, at that time, an issue like abortion and the early issues related to the sexual revolution, your position on those betrayed deeper theological problems. And the Southern Baptist Convention was determined to fix this school, and uh, I had a plan to fix it. And you know, maybe I was young and expendable, but they elected me. I had a plan, and uh, we stuck by that plan, and the Lord allowed it to take place. And uh, I just uh, am, am completing 30 years in this role, so add 30 to 33. <laughs> and uh, I can just look back and say, God, uh, God brought about the most amazing revolution and reformation within an institution. I think in some ways you are one of the torchbearers for anti-abortion uh, thought in our culture today yes. for, from Christians. And that's something I want to get into because mm-hmm. that is, in our estimation, you know, we have people right. from all different walks of life, different religions, people who are atheists who are passionately anti-abortion. Right. If you're a Christian, being opposed to abortion, the killing, thou shalt not kill being one of the Ten Commandments, but being opposed to the killing of God's children seems pretty fundamental. And so I want to understand, because when you took the role that you have now, you know, being this teacher for a denomination that's huge, I mean, my understanding is there's uh, four million in the pews on Sunday. Well, at least. At least captive audience in the United States, 40,000 churches in the Southern Baptist Convention. So this is a hefty job to lead. That's uh, how many pastors? That's 40,000 plus pastors. That's right. So this, I mean, if the Southern Baptist Convention is imprinting not just pro-life belief yes. and, and, and helping people understand it in their people, but they're also helping to activate That's right. their flocks, what a tremendous game change that can be. Well, that became very evident to Southern Baptists in the 60s and 70s. And so what became known as the conservative resurgence in the Southern Baptist Convention was led by largely conservative lay people and conservative pastors who said, we've got to recapture these institutions because they are producing the pastors. And uh, that, will, uh, that, will, that will decide whether the gospel and the scripture are teached to our congregations or not. And so there was a concerted effort to regain control by conservatives. But you know, the issue of abortion was always there. And so here, here's what, uh, in, in my grand theory of all things, uh, I believe that uh, both in national politics with the election, for instance, of Ronald Reagan in 1980, the realignment of the Republican Party, the uh, reformation that took place in the Southern Baptist Convention, and uh, many other lead. issues. Yes, very much, which, which all this came together. The theological issues for uh, we Baptists were primary but the issue that demonstrated the result of the bad theology was abortion. And so it quickly became the, the dividing line in ways that are predictable in retrospect, but, but weren't uh, predictable at the time. So if I could just say this, it became shorthand 
for the entire set of theological issues. The Southern Baptists learned to ask people their position on abortion, and they worked back from that to the theology. Mm. And the theology starts with the philosophy. Because if you have a nihilistic philosophy of the world, right. or the wrong, wrong, wrong way to think about what it even means to be human, right. then your theology is going to be wrong. Right. And so, you know, the, the underpinnings of the theological confusion today is ultimately a philosophical confusion, right. where people don't know what it means to be human anymore. Right. They don't know what even human rights. We talk about them. You know, the United Nations talks about human rights. What is a human right anymore? Right. If the first right isn't life for all humans. So I think these fundamental questions were just tossed up and complete uh, confusion ensued, yes. and so that there are theological ramifications are yeah. shouldn't surprise any of us. No, that's brilliantly said. But we're back in the 16th century, where Catholics and Protestants are agreed that there's a pre-political. But the pre-political, the question is which comes first? You said philosophy. I'm going to say theology. We'll encapsulate a few centuries of debate in that and say. We could you go there. You have to have both. <laughs> you you do need both you, you because who God both. is helps yeah. us understand who we are. Right. Yes, I would say he is, he is the first principle of any true philosophy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. But then there's the debate about what theologically it looks like to practice one's faith and what that faith looks like. And those are all discussions. But that fundamental question of right. should is it is it right to kill? Is it okay to kill a baby in the womb? Right. You can have a, and this is actually a question for you. Right. Can you have a someone who would say, I don't even profess a belief in God? Yes. And can you get that person to logically acknowledge that it is wrong to kill a child in the womb? The basic worldview divide here is between theists and materialists. Because if you're not a theist, then by definition, you are a materialist. Richard Dawkins, an example. Uh, Richard Dawkins has a very hard time holding on to a consistent materialism. We as Christians know why. You can't, it's, it's very hard. hard to be consistently wrong, uh, such as looking at well, a Well, it's hard to be consistently atheist when it takes a lot of belief to be an atheist Absolutely. about the way the world is. Right, and, and atheists are always astounded by the experience of wonder mm. or, or the experience of love. And, uh, you know, I always say that the most important apologetic question in dealing with atheism is why does a mother love her child? Mm. Uh, because if all you have is a materialistic answer to that, I don't know any mom is really buying into that in honesty, mm. nor anyone who looks in wonder at a mother uh, with her child. So all that to say, uh, we are in a time in which abortion is, has become the issue that forces us backwards. So honestly, it's abortion first, but then the huge issues of sexuality and gender that have now forced Christians into tracking these issues backward to first principles, whereas in a time before this kind of intellectual and moral crisis, that was not the case. What's your take on the sexual revolution? It sounds like what you're saying is the seeds for it were sown centuries prior, which I agree with. Right. And we may have some disagreements if we go way back. We're not going to go, we don't have to go all the way back towards, you know. Genesis 3. Uh, Gen <laughs> Genesis 3. But what what is, the sexual revolution was this moment that happened. Right. 60s, 70s, right, uh, and it was this tectonic shift. Right. I I have a hard time believing it was purely ideological, meaning it was just some ideologues right. came around and somehow persuaded everybody to have the wrong view of sex. Right. What are you? What's your take on that? Well, and this, how were they so is, successful? This in is 60s, a this is an academic prior? debate that may shock people, but. Uh, the big question about the sexual revolution has always been how much is ideological or how much is glandular? Mm. In, in other words... Or how much is technological? Now. Well, even right. th because that, the, the huge thing that happened was contraception right. in the right. 20s right. and 30s. And then all of a sudden, that immediately separates and makes it popular to separate children yeah. from sex. Yeah. Yeah, I was... Uh, I was the first and only Protestant involved in the uh, anniversary of, uh, of the Pope's declaration, uh, Humanae Vitae, uh, in First Things years ago, decades ago now. And uh, a part of what I wrote was the necessity of a Protestant recovery of the understanding of the unity of the goods. Mm. Uh, yeah, so there's no doubt uh, that that was the big technological, and look, it was ideological, as you know. The pill didn't come out of nowhere. The right. pill was a determined effort um, true. as part of a moral rebellion that was already there. The, the, the pill didn't come from people on the right, mm -hmm. who basically are far more pronatalist anyway. Mm -hmm. 
but from people on the left who saw babies as an imposition upon uh, the liberation of women, uh, a, a natural constraint women had to overcome. Which is so sad that you know our liberation as women is destroy your fertility, right. destroy your children, destroy what makes you uniquely a woman, feminine. Right. And that was what the whole, the whole game was. And today we are miserable because of it, women. Right. But at the time, it was all new, and it seemed so promising. Well, you can't have any of this without the revolution in the self. And so if you look at someone born in the 19th century and some, someone born, say, in the midpoint or later in the 20th century, their notion of the self is entirely different, at least in Western societies. Now you have an autonomous self. You have a, you have a self as the center of all meaning. And uh, so any imposition on the self is something that has to be overcome. Mm -hmm. And that imposition might be called a baby. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you look at this, you see it all comes, the sexual revolution uh, was, was driven by the ideologies, but it, it, it is glandular. I mean, uh, Pitarim Sorokin, who was the founder of sociology at Harvard, uh, by the way, fascinating figure, like twice under a death sentence from the Soviets. He escapes from Russia, ends up at Harvard of all places, by the way, a determined conservative. But Pitarim Sorokin says, look, the first requirement of, of any civilization is to reproduce itself, and the second is to bank sexual passion from destroying the society. And you know what? He's right. Right, and even the, the Greco-Romans had their versions of that. Absolutely. There was certain, a certain morality. They had absolute immoralities and abuses right. of children and women, but there was a certain order that they declared, this is the order of our society. And when people were out of order, right. they're out of order. When there's now no sexual order, there's right. no order for you know, our relations except consent, right? right. That's, that's, the, that's the line, the line in the sand, right. don't rape. But is consent, the, the again, throws land. everything back on the self. Mm -hmm. So there's no objective right or wrong. There's well, no it doesn't protect children, right. certainly, because right. there's argument that dual children can consent to a sex change. Children can consent to um, you know, sexual activity with other children. I mean, you start to peel back that argument, and you end up in very dark places. Very dark places are inevitable. I mean, when, when, you, when you destroy, to use Sorokin's uh, language, you, you destroy the firebanks. Well, the fire comes in, and, and that's what's happening throughout our society. And you know, it, it was it was always uh, marked by a leading edge that said, "We want to go this far; we're not going any further." Uh, but then look at LGBTQIA plus. In other words, the plus sign is the most morally significant thing there because at least it's an honest acknowledgement. This is, this is never endless. ending. So back to your take on the sexual revolution, because I think my goal right now uh -huh. is suss that out. Then we're going to talk about how do we okay. create a new revolution good. to get us to the true, right. the good, the beautiful, and how do we activate pastors towards that end and Christians. But right. I think it's so key to understand how we got here. And I know you've yeah. studied this in depth. So the sexual revolution is this window in time, and then it kind right. of proliferates into right. you know, kind of an unending chaos and, and misery. But right. it's this moment in time. What do you think were the biggest drivers? You know, we yeah. talked about technology a little bit, but what do you think were the biggest drivers of the sexual revolution? And and let's define yeah. the sexual revolution too. Because I think that yeah. for folks listening, we say this term, but what 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 do you what do you think that means? Well that was a term that was used at the time and is now broader than just sex, as that term implied, which, which meant literally um, actions and behaviors and relationships. But now it's right down to gender and whether or not male and female are determinative in any way. And so it, 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 we're, we're way beyond just the sexual revolution. But the understanding was that, uh, look, society's repressive. And by the way, you can't have this without Freud. You can't have this without Jung. Kinsey. Exactly. You can't have this without the whole psychotherapeutic pointing to the self saying, your project is to liberate yourself from external constraints. Which and these, is are, these is. are 20th century ideologues with different backgrounds, scientific right. or philosophical or whatever. And they had these new ways right. of talking about human sexuality. One common thread. What's the common They all thread? saw theistic, biblical, religious belief as the most oppressive foundation of all. Well, Marx did too. Absolutely. So it's, it's a, Nietzsche, Marx, Freud, Darwin, they're all of a piece. But, but when it comes to sex, I think, I think that's true. That is a common thread. But when it comes to their false view yeah. of human sexuality, 
it can root back to that. But how did they all, or do you think they just all had their own well, version of trying to win a sense of maybe radical, like you said, autonomy where liberation. I can do what I want? It's in the name of liberation. Liberation. So at least Christians understand that the sexual impulse is massively powerful. I mean, the Bible is very honest about it. Uh, banking that, limiting that. Well, that's directing, necess- it, right? right directing rightly properly, directing yeah. it towards mm-hmm. its proper end. Mm-hmm. Th- th- that, that's the goal of civilization, the goal of parents, right? It's, it's, the, it's the goal of the church. Uh, but all that did come along to say that all that amounts to control and repression. Mm. It, it confines the self. You need to have free love, free sex, and, and, and all the rest. Be unbound by bourgeois sexual morality, etc. You can't have that so long as you have some objective realities. Mm-hmm. And the objective realities include, uh, as you pointed out, babies. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms sex of makes babies. Sex leads to babies. Mm-hmm. The next thing is you can't have it without redefining marriage. And so redefining marriage was the second project. Well, because the Christian view of marriage is that sex is for marriage. Right. So it's not it's not like an anti, you know, there's a lot of uh, folks that think that the Christian view of marriage is somehow specifically out to get people who have same-sex attraction. It doesn't matter your sexual attractions before marriage. The reality is you can't act on sexual attraction. Sexual acts before marriage are all illicit. Right. Whether they're heterosexual acts, you know, between exactly. a man and a woman, or same-sex acts, right. whatever the acts are, you know, masturbation, it's wrong before. Uh, it's not just wrong before; there are also acts wrong within marriage. Sure, but it's that, that's it's, the radicality of the the Christian understanding of sexuality. There's only one legitimate expression, one, mm-hmm. and that's between a man and a woman married, loving, honoring, loving marriage. Mm-hmm. Commitment, because you can also Mutual do abusive things with sex and marriage. So it's not that being married protects from abuse as well. It no, but ju- both, but but it, it but it, it goes a long way. I mean, uh, Pope Benedict XVI was really really clear about this, and and he's right. This is just a the Protestants affirm the same thing. Marriage is which the Book of Common Prayer says, um, and and always has. So almost all Protestant services in the Book of Common Prayer say marriage is a remedy for sin. In other words, it does protect, uh, in, in the context of marriage, a man has the responsibility to protect his wife so that no evil befalls her. Can sin happen in marriage? Of course. But, but I think, I it think limits direct, sin enormously. Yeah. But to directly, to properly direct the passions, obviously, is key. Yeah. But also, we're not, I don't think anyone would say that you should enter into a marriage thinking, well, now I have an outlet for disordered sexual attraction. Absolutely. Because I, I think that the proper ordering of all things is foundational. Right. Because I think and we know what it is, yeah. both from nature and from scripture. And the view of, you know, John Paul II, Pope John Paul II, mm-hmm. his theology of the body is that chastity is lived both in and outside of marriage. So it's it, it, we're all called to chastity, whether you're a celibate, whether you're single, whether you're married, and that is the we all have the same. Uh, we're all so re- holiness and, we're all and sexual to, limitation and true and a true love. Yeah. But I think that that what you said earlier about the sexual revolution and this idea that you know there's no sort of uh, boundaries to sex. It's also I think the Christians sometimes get a bad rep of saying, well, you're just anti-sex. Right. And I think there is a reaction uh, among some, especially younger people who think, well, Christians are just down, you know, especially more orthodox Christians, traditional, they might use that word conservative, are just down on sex. What do you have to say to that? Well, if you look at the churches and denominations, and I believe they're apostate, I think they've departed the faith that are pro-sexual revolution, get the rainbow flags out front and all the rest, you know, you don't find inside them babies. You go to a conservative church where things are rightly ordered, you find a lot of babies. Uh, all the evidence of sex being directed rightly shows up where people actually know what the right direction of sexuality is. And so I simply want to say this is another thing. It just gets to the cultural dynamic we live in now. Liberals don't reproduce by and large. It's conservatives who have the babies. And uh, so the liberals basically have to get the babies on a college campus and, you know, evangelize them for leftist ideology, or they can reach them even younger, as you know, through other means like Hollywood. But the fact is, the wrong ordering of sexuality is inherently sterile. Mm. So there, there is no self-replicating left. 
they have to get someone else's children to join them. Well, the and the other thing that, so you're right, it, I mean, sex brings babies into the world. And if you're not uh, pro-baby, then mm. you're going to, in a way, you're anti-sex. I think that's true. Yeah. But at the same time, it, all the social data that I've seen says mm. the people that are the most sexually satisfied mm. are married people who are in lifelong monogamous marriages. Absolutely. And they're actually having sex the most. The, the women are the most happy because yes. sex is not just for babies. Sex is yeah. for babies, absolutely. But sex is also for true intimacy and bonding. So, and that happens within a loving, lifelong commitment, not a, not a yeah. hookup. So I was speaking on a major elite college campus and I was talking to Good a 20-year-old. <laughs> yeah, it's complicated, as you know, and <laughs> sometimes dangerous. But a 20-year-old young man came up to me, and he looked like a poster on the admissions picture. And he had just become a believing Christian. And he came out of all the sexual stuff that you know, he was told he was supposed to be engaged in. And then he showed me the sex code for his college set out by the administration. And you know what this is all about. With the very real problem of sexual assault and all the rest, all these things, again, you, you tear the boundaries down, you tear the, you know, the firewalls down, guess what? Fire happens. Uh, and, uh, and so anyway, you look, it was like eight pages of what consent is now defined to be. It's no wonder people in that world uh, have less sex and have more pain and confusion. It's a, this young man just simply said to me, you know, I just came to understand how simple the biblical understanding of sexuality is and what a liberation that is. Mm -hmm. I'm liberated from seven pages of policy uh, by saying, one day he said, I do. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, th th that's the thing, you know, this is, uh, you know, it's, it's not that a biblical worldview, a biblical understanding of sexuality has been tried and found wanting. It was the elites that already denied it, that tried post-fact to rationalize their theory. There's a, a, a very prominent moral philosopher who says that modernity comes down to rationalized sexual misbehavior. The entire intellectual project of modernity is to rationalize sexual misbehavior. Yeah. I find that a very difficult thesis to reject. Well, there's a lot of articles too have been written by disaffected, you know, young women and some young right. men, but mostly young women speaking out about what it's like to actually have this sexual revolution sex, you know, this free right. sex and right. how miserable it is and how right. you know, did I consent or did I not? Did I want that or not? What are they enjoying that or not? And there's a famous piece in the New Yorker and she describes this very nihilistic experience with this man where she right. is, you know, having this hookup and then afterwards she's like, we might as well die. It is the end of the piece. Should yeah. we have just killed ourselves then and there? What was the well, point of all of that? Was it, there any love there? There wasn't. Yeah. It's so very I think, hard to have a, mm -hmm. an honest conversation about this. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it's also chaste. And, and, and so Christians are at a decided disadvantage in talking about some of these things. Mm. But, you know, when we understand the biblical conception of marital sex, which is the only sex the Bible validates, it's described as a knowledge. And, and it certainly is. And it's a knowledge that is limited to that couple against the entire world. Right. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an exclusiveness mm -hmm. against the entire world. If you make, if you destroy that exclusiveness, it's no wonder so many people, especially women, feel broken mm. by the sexual revolution. Mm. It is because it could only lead to depression. Yeah. You know, all this idea, and, and you mentioned the sexual revolution, this idea, this picture of free sex, which means self-expression, which leads to personal liberation. Mm. You know, what it's led to is the, the fragility of the psyche and personality uh, of so many people that, I mean, it's headline news in America this week. Right. It's true. Um, there's so much more to say there. And on the consent issue, one more question, and I want to connect this to abortion because there's a huge direct right. line of connection here, as you know. Uh, but on, on the issue, this issue of consent, you mentioned the young man with eight pages of consent from his university. Yeah. And, you know, if, if you have to take time to write out eight pages of why you should get consent before, right. uh, you know, having sex with just this incredibly powerful thing with someone, right. then is really writing it going to persuade them? You know, is there something deeper going on? That's what there? I mean with the glandular part. Right. In other words, this is, this is rationalization on the other side of a moral impulse. Now you're trying to build a policy for it. But I mean, do not rape is pretty, 
should be pretty obvious. You shouldn't have right. to spend eight right. pages writing about right. it. So I know, you know, this has been the um, accusation and it's been a real uh, uh, problem, a mm. tremendous problem. You know, sexual abuse is a tremendous problem. We investigated right. at Live Action in connection to abortion. Abortion right. clinics covering up sexual sexual abuse. Planned Parenthood covering up sexual abuse. Uh, in addition, you know, in the Catholic Church, abuse cover up has been a mm. tremendous blight right. on you know the trust that people should have with their their priests, with those right. in the church. And there's been a lot of work done to try to rectify, and more needs to be done. Same in the Southern Baptist Convention, there have been accusations, and there have right. been and uh, victims who've spoken out. What What is your response for how, what is the proper response of a church leader, of a pastor, of the SBC to uh, a survivor of sexual abuse who stands up and said, someone in authority hurt me? Well, first of all, in humility, we need to say that if you look at the history of the Christian church, there have been various moments when there has been corruption and need of correction. There has been misunderstanding and need of clarification. Uh, the sex abuse crisis, and it is that, presents the Christian church with a real responsibility to say, we have handled many of these things wrongly. We have failed to respond to the cries of the wounded. Um, and, and so we've got to learn how to protect people, everyone better than we have in the past, and how to deal with reports uh, of, of abuse in such a way that uh, are authentic and clear and, uh, and, and frankly, often involve bringing in law enforcement or anything else, but offering support for and spiritual ministry to anyone who's a victim or survivor uh, of sexual abuse. And then remedying the situation as best we know how. The thing is, you know, it takes a certain, G.K. Chesterton got this exactly right. It takes a certain amount of moral achievement to be accused of hypocrisy. You have to have some standards. <laughs> you have to be making some truth claim. And that's what I want to say. I, I think apart from the objective uh, morality and the structures of creation and marriage and the family and the biblical teaching about sexuality, I don't know how in the world we can possibly repair this because mm -hmm. consent clearly is, is not an adequate sexual morality. It's a baseline, yeah. Well, I think you're, what you We're said We're not denying first, consent, right. but it's just, it's just not yeah. enough. Well, I think what you first said is key mm -hmm. is humility. And you know, G.K. Chesterton also says, what's wrong with the right. world, sir? me. That's right. <laughs> so we start That's with right. ourselves and, but then we, you know, work on ourselves. And then we also share though the truth that we are trying to live by so other people can right. be freed by that. We really truth. do believe, and I believe it's absolutely true that the only human flourishing and happiness that extends from the individual to the couple, married couple, to the family, to the civilization is that which limits all sexual behavior to a man and a woman united in the holy covenant commitment of marriage. And so everything outside of that is going to bring injury. Everything outside of that is going to weaken the entire moral fiber of the universe. And uh, you know, the secular world doesn't want to hear us say that, but I believe that with all my heart and I don't think there's any health on the other side of compromising that. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think there's a lot of suffering today that proves that, you know, in the in sexual abuse right. rates and uh, pornography, the proliferation of child pornography. That's right. Um, all of the sexual deviancy that is just unfettered right now in society, because if you don't put a line in the sand on this is the proper order for sexual right. expression, uh, you open the door and the door has been opened. That's and that's right. kind of the plus too. I mean, there are lobbies, right. even with this LGBTQ political identity that sort Sort of right. developed in the last couple decades. Um, that plus, there are people that want in on that club to say, you know, this is a man-boy right. love association, and uh, you know that was actually which is a real organization, which is a real organization that had a lot of was picking up steam in the '90s. Yeah, and then the Catholic Church abuse scandal broke, and the exposés that were happening. Thanks be to God, justice being served, but it, it re-stigmatized child right, sexual abuse right. of young boys. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. And so I, I I'd say let's re stigmatize that again every day, all day, right. because there's forces at work to try to, to try to But the breakdown it. of the sexual morality based on a biblical creation order understanding, it doesn't lead to some things. It leads to everything eventually. So, um, 86% of women who have abortions are unmarried. Yeah. 86%. 
So the through line for a woman who's at risk for abortion is she's not married. Right. So back to what you were saying earlier, and these are this is from Planned Parenthood's research arm. Mm-hmm. This isn't some you know right. church statistic or something. Nine in ten. What's the res- what? What do we do? What do we do about this? What do we do to to well, to yeah. um, heal here and help? Yeah. Well, two things, and this is where I think medieval Christianity had a very healthy impulse, which is uphold marriage, uphold uh, understandings of sexuality that limit all sexual expression to marriage, and then build orphanages and schools to take care for children who otherwise would not be cared for. You know, kind of the Mother Teresa instinct, give us your unwanted child. And so I think the Christian church has to take that medieval notion and, and live it out again. How do we protect against though? Because I think in a lot of churches, there is fear among women who become pregnant, whether it's they're unmarried or yeah. adultery or something, and they will go for abortion because of their repu- of reputational issues. Yeah. Um, and, and that's so tragic, horribly tragic, yeah. you yeah. know, or there's stories even of, you know, young women who share their pregnant and they're kicked, you know, there was a horrible story. She's kicked out of her Christian school because right. her high right. school, because she's right. pregnant. The sin wasn't getting pregnant. Pregnancy is not a sin. Right. You know, it, there's a sin in premarital Pregnancy's sex. Pregnancy is a result. But, yeah, but, yes, but it's yes. a beautiful, and that thanks, thanks yes. be to God, a new human life. You know, right, that's a blessing, right? right? Um, but, you know, right. I don't think her, the guy who was gotten her pregnant was kicked out. You know, she, and this is, of course, the, I think, the excess yeah. of, a, of, a, of a, you know, a, a line on sexual morality is when you start to accuse or make them feel right. accused, those who are pregnant. What's our response? to women who, are, women who are pregnant and who are unmarried, especially well, in the church. Yeah, I, I think the church. there's a sense in which, in or think, churches. I think there's a sense in which this is a very different situation than the Christian church has faced, at least in recent decades, maybe even centuries. Because what we're looking at now is a situation in which, just given the statistic you mentioned from uh, Guttmacher, yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, you look at that, you recognize, well, okay, so, Right now, we have to have kind of an emergency ethic. Now, emergency ethic has to be true. It has to be righteous. It has to be holy. But a part of an emergency ethic is a rescue ethic, Mm -hmm. which means you rescue people first. You ask questions about how to morally sort out a lot of situations later. And so when you're looking at a a child in a mother's womb at any stage, the emergency is take care of the child. And to and take care of take, her. Well, that's where I'm headed. You can't, you can't take yeah. care of the child without taking care of the mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, other things, in an emergency ethic, you know, you, you pluck people out of the water. You, you, you deal with other things later, like how to make sure ships are made more safe mm-hmm. uh, and avoid bad weather. And in other words, all kinds of things. We need to make ships safe. We need to avoid bad weather, but we need to pluck people out of the water. And so the Christian church actually has known how to do that through so many centuries. We need to relearn those skills. Um, how to do that without saying, well, we're just putting our convictions on marriage and sex on hold. No, we're not putting them on hold because the exceptions always prove the rule in this case. In other words, I don't know any woman who would say, you know, I really am glad I am unmarried and now pregnant. Well, and I think the key is there's no scarlet letter. I mean, there, th- right. that book was written at a time when there were scarlet letters. Right. And, and, and if we say, okay, you, you made a mistake, you had sex, many people make mistakes. All of us make mistakes. We all have, you know, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, right? So if we have this shaming mentality around sex where it's like, you messed up, you're, you're in that shame. You are, you are, you know, used goods, whatever these, you know, very harsh and harmful categories are. Um, that's not Christianity. That's not Christianity to say you sinned and therefore you're not redeemed. You can't be redeemed. I mean, that's ridiculous. Well, or you sinned and so your sin is, you know, so horrible and I'm, I sinned, but my sin is not horrible. That's not the path either. Well, it's always been unequal. And, and again, so is this just an accident of biology that it's unequal? I mean, is this, again, if you're a materialist, going back to an earlier point in our conversation, are the differences between men and women, males and females, are, are those merely just accidental? Because... Boys don't get pregnant, girls do. And so you mentioned the, the young woman who was kicked out of a school and the young man perhaps not. Well, well, the point is the Christian church has to understand that the sexual 
confusion all around us is so deep that we have to do two things simultaneously. Number one, preach the word in season and out of season. Uphold God's teaching on these issues and, and make it a matter of the congregation's um, covenant pledge and, and uphold it. And rescue the perishing, care for the dying, uh, reach out to those, prevent the, uh, the, the, the abortion of a human being assist a young woman in the greatest moment. My wife's been very involved in these ministries. I know so many so many of these ministries in so many cities across America where actually what we're talking about is taking place. What is needed is for every single Christian church and every single Christian pastor to understand what leadership in this looks like. Right. Well, and also to recognize that uh, our sexual choices, we are equally responsible for men and women. So it's I, not <laughs> absolutely. It's unequal in consequence. Right, right. But it always has been. Right, it always, which it is always all the more been. reason to, as you say, step up right. on the care side, to be there absolutely. to to support. So listen, you have it's incredible the Southern Baptist Convention, the number of people in the pews every Sunday. Right. It's it's wonderful, you know, that there's so many that are Thanks, fervently God. seeking to practice their uh-huh. their, their faith. Right. And uh, you know, the abortion crisis is all around us. The abortion rates in the last report year were higher than the year prior. Right. So now it's now over 2,500 children killed every day by abortion. And I firmly believe that if everybody that sat in some sort of faith community every week was sitting there and were united in their opposition of abortion, not just in belief, but in practice, right. we can end abortion in America. Yeah, we could certainly, uh, we could certainly start a pushback that I believe would reveal the weakness of the pro-abortion case and the pro-abortion cause. And we're, we're going after hearts and minds. And uh, yeah, I, I take that challenge very seriously. Mobilizing pastors, Southern Baptist, evangelical pastors to be active uh, and to connect the dots. That's the big thing. So here's a very good thing about so many of those pastors. They're committed to biblical preaching. They're, they're committed to the exposition of scripture. And that, that's, that's what preaching is. Um, what many of them don't know and maybe are scared about is how to connect the dots. Because I had a pastor tell me one time, I'll preach on abortion when, when I get to a text that addresses it. Well, actually, what text doesn't address it? In, in, in the sense that, when you, whether it's a narrative concerning Mary and Joseph and the... Or, or, or whether it's Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, or whether it's in the Psalms, fearfully and wonderfully made, you know, connect the dots. We need regularly to do two things, uh, to teach preachers how to get up and declare the whole counsel of God and connect the dots on these issues. And then, and by the way, not just abortion, start there, but marriage, gender, and sexuality. And then uh, at, at the same time, um, work with organizations that are Christian committed, but are outside the local church, combining the efforts of local churches um, because I, re- I really do believe that's, that's very, very important. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, conservatives in the United States began at the midpoint of the 20th century to note the importance of what Peter Berger and Richard John Newhouse called mediating institutions, Daniel Bell and others. So these are, these are special purpose organizations. Uh, you're running one, mm-hmm. and I'm very thankful. Mm-hmm. We, we need churches and Christians to support these, which are actually like think tanks, and uh, an educational and activism units uh, into which the local church can pour people and pour resources and energy to accomplish some single purpose things that sometimes are, are you know, the, just to take one local Baptist church, they may not know how to or have the resources to be a part of that mobilization, but they can be a part of an organization that is. Mm. Well, it's something that's been a long ongoing conversation at Live Action is what do we do to reach Christians. Right. And there's different kinds of Christians that hold different beliefs, which is in a way a tragedy. We're supposed to be one and united. And yet there's this strange uh, diffusion of what it means to be a Christian when it comes to most fundamental questions of what, when does life begin, Um, which is not a Christian question. It's not a belief question. It's a fact. And when life begins, it's a scientific fact, as you know, um, as you've written about yourself. But uh, when you talk, so one of the things we're doing is designing curriculum that is going to be made accessible to churches and, uh, you know, videos that show lifelike uh, animated uh-huh. life in the womb. That's you know, right. From the moment of That's fertilization. Right. 
actually right. exposing the abortion procedures. We have a series that has been mm -hmm. shown in churches yes. to show this is actually what we're dealing with. And I think, you know, one of the things that you said earlier was, you know, the pastor says, well, where do I find the, the, the text to teach from right? Right. in the Bible? And you're right. saying, well, there's so many texts that talk about life in the womb. That being said, I think the question is for the pastor, would you say the question is not just Obviously, what is what is what what does the text say? You know, for SBC yes. for for Baptists, what does the Bible say? But it's also what's happening around us as Christians in the world right. we're trying to evangelize, right. right? Right. Because, you know, the big thing right now, twenty five hundred children are being killed every day in this country That's right. legally, legally, That's right. That's right. with consent of the law. Right down the street. Right down the street from yeah. where we sing on a Sunday morning, right. twelve hours prior. The, the day before a right. child was torn apart, dismembered in utero at just 20 weeks old and yeah. life went on. I am so thankful for your personal work and witness in this area. I think part of this is generational. And I say that with uh, a bit of humility and respect. Um, there is a sense in which my generation and those just a little bit older than I, saw a bit too much uh, hope in rather immediate political remedies. Mm -hmm. Now- The Christian majority. Right, I am not giving up on that effort because I don't think we can be faithful. And you're but speaking to- But I'm an to... Augustinian, mm -hmm. a Christian. Uh, I'm sure I share that with you in the sense that it's, it's an ongoing battle always. And so that some of the younger pastors they, they understand that salvation's not coming with the next, you know, even numbered year in America with an election. It, 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 it's going to have to be deeper than that. So part of our challenge is turning to uh, younger pastors and saying, you're going to have to start connecting these dots and you can't just figure out the perfect way to do this. And you just need to, there are babies being aborted right now. What are you going to say about it right now? Say the right things right now. Start talking. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we're going to have to hammer out a lot of this. The church has always had to hammer out moral response in the midst of a crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, you know, what we say is saying something is better than saying nothing. That's right. When there's a crisis. That's right. So don't wait for and the you can't don't say let the perfect be the enemy of the good. But also training. I mean, again, at, at the seminary, right. is there yeah. training on pro-life yes. apologetics to a very diverse, maybe, congregation that comes from different you know, has different uh, background and different misunderstandings. Yeah, well, part of what I have to take seriously is they need to hear from me on these issues recurringly. So every year I go through several of these issues. Look, for me as an academic president, it all comes down to hiring faculty. That's so huge. I'm hiring the faculty who intend to raise up a generation very not only well-versed and educated about these issues, but passionate uh, about confronting them. And I'm proud to say, you can see the evidence of that. I look at our graduates and I think they're doing a far more faithful job than my generation ever did. I look at the proliferation of ministries to women, particularly women who, who may be pregnant and considering abortion, and then the ongoing ministry, just in terms of the local church, in loving people and, and loving people with babies, mothers with babies, and, uh, and and families, and incorporating them together. I think, by the way, that's a big problem. It's just, you can't just have a ministry over here. We actually believe our theology, that means we need to bring them into the family of faith in such a way that they, they are a part of this family, and we strengthen their family. Do you think every uh, Southern Baptist church should have a pregnancy center that they work with? Uh, absolutely. And absolutely. What's, the, what's the answer for men? Because, you know, in every pregnancy, yeah. a man got, you know, right. half of that, uh, right. made half of that happen, right? Right. And so we talk a lot about serving the woman as we need to, because she's carrying this child and not just for the nine months, but afterwards uh, too, whether right. she chooses to parent or adopt. But what about the father? Where are the men? Every woman in the pew who might be pregnant, an unplanned pregnancy, where's the man? Well, I, I will just speak uh, for the... Uh, for the male side of the equation and saying that if you look at the moral rebellion, certainly feminism, second wave feminism had a massive, massive impact. But the greatest failure in any society is going to be the failure of men. And that's exactly what you see here. And unfortunately you see it in the church in, in so many ways. And, uh, and holding men accountable is what a society has to do. And look, we're in the midst of a society that's trying to find every way to tell men 
even young men and boys, you're not really accountable. And so uh, we're reaping what we have sown. The what church, does that mean least, to be accountable? Uh, taking responsibility for what you have done, taking moral responsibility for being a part of a society. And if you are an outlaw, you're going to be treated as an outlaw. If you are a delinquent, you're going to have to be treated as a delinquent. Uh, society has to operate by rules or you don't have a society. Now, that doesn't mean we just write people off, but it does mean that uh, a society without very clear boundaries is, in short order, not a society. And, and of course, the most vulnerable are the most vulnerable. So when a society is failing, it doesn't fail mostly with the people who are on the you know 81st floor in Manhattan. It, it's going to fail where you have women who in many cases think, I don't have, by their own reasoning, uh, an economic option here. I, I don't have a support system. And so, and, and children, and you look at the, the, the you, you see recently the headlines about the rates of depression among American children and teenagers. Teen girls are suffering it's badly. It's just so horrifying. And you look at that and say, well, the problem, what what have we done as a society to bring that about? And And I don't think anyone running those headlines is really seriously saying, maybe we need to rethink this whole sexual revolution, gender confusion, rainbow flag. Well, and that's, that's my hope is that um, even in all the suffering today, yeah. people are looking for answers yeah. because they're not happy and they're not living the lives that they could be living. And if they catch a glimpse of what life could be, how good it could be, they right. start to look for maybe I'll make some changes. So, right. you know, as a Christian, uh, yeah. as a teacher, as a pastor, when you are talking to, you know, that couple maybe, or that woman or that man, and they're part of an unplanned pregnancy. Yeah. Um, or maybe they had an abortion, right? You know, they're, they are, they are, right. yes, they've made choices, but in a way they're a victim of this whole cultural chaos right. that's surrounding us. What's the message of hope? I so appreciate the fact you use that word because it's the word I, I wanted to insert here. You, you did it so well. Uh, the Christian hope in Christ is that all things can be made well. Now, in this world, we will have trouble, Jesus said. Uh, but he said, fear not, I've overcome the world. Now, you know, I, I had to minister early in my ministry to someone who was horribly injured in an accident caused by a drunk driver. Well, you know, that healing is not going to come in this life. It's just a reminder that not every eye is dry and every tear is wiped away until the kingdom of Christ. But between here and there, the church is to be made up of people who together in obedience to Christ are instilling hope in each other and, uh, and caring for one another in the, the shared love of the, first of all, the local church and then the shared love of the family and the shared love of uh, friends in Christ for one another. And that's an open hope, right? So in other words, we, we want others to join with us. We want them to know salvation in Christ. We want them to know the forgiveness of sins. We want them to know what it means. And so the problem is, that, that, and this is really hard. This is really hard because we have to say two things at the same time. We really do believe in this picture, which is described in the Bible of what is right and righteous. We really do believe that the greatest human happiness, human flourishing, human, human preservation is going to take place in that. We also understand that there are millions upon millions of our friends and neighbors we dearly love and even family members who are not there. And, 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 the, and in this life, you, you can't recreate that in every case. But the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has always been made up of people who, on the other hand, say, you know, your identity in Christ as a new creature in Christ transcends all of that. And it's the job of the Christian church to love you, to support you, uh, to encourage one another to righteousness, to care for each other, and to make very clear that all of us in the fall short of the glory of God. And we are all sinners redeemed by Christ, growing in grace together. And, uh, you know, if you're in a church of any size, and you say, well, everyone in our church looks just like us, you got a big problem. Mm -hmm. uh, because the mission field to which we are assigned includes all the numbers you just gave us, horrifying words. All around us are young women who are even right now considering abortion in desperation. All around us are people who have reached the, the limit of their secular hope. So 
you invited a Baptist into this conversation. <laughs> That's what we're going to say. We preach Christ and then demonstrate Christian love. Well, I think the power of that preaching in the biggest denomination in the country, in the leading country in the world, can help change the course of history, I pray. I believe we will be judged yeah. if we do not rise to that occasion. Mm -hmm. So may we, may we put extra effort now into this fight for Amen. a new revolution, Amen. for life and for true love. Thank you for what you do and others. I just want to say, I think uh, we, we desperately need arguments as clear as the ones you make uh, coming from uh, some uh, unexpected sources to catch especially the attention of younger believers. And, uh, you know, I believe in what, uh, I believe it was John Wesley described as the opportunity of a gospel surprise. Confront people with an argument they've not heard. Give them a picture they may not have imagined before and motivate them to right action. Thanks for doing that. Thank you. Well, thank you, Dr. Moeller, for your passion for life and your, your courage to be thank a you. leader, a leader for life. And we look forward to, we hope, partnering and doing more to, to get this message out Absolutely. throughout the church and throughout the, throughout the country. Thank you, Lyle. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening. Be sure to hit subscribe and share this episode with a friend so you too can learn how to change hearts and minds on abortion.